from GreenBiz Group. Welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here at GreenBiz headquarters at 350 Frank Ogawa Plaza in downtown Oakland, California. On this week's edition, China stops importing our waste. The Rocky Mountain Institute's look ahead. A new consortium fights marine plastics and a peek at 2018 from some of our friends. It's time to call it a year, this week on 350. It's December 22nd, 2017. Welcome to this week's episode of Green Biz 350, the last one of this glorious year. Joining me is my co-pilot in all this, editorial director, Heather Clancy. Heather, how are you? Hi. Glorious, huh? <laughs> <laughs> well, nice. I, 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 uh, my tongue was kind of near my cheek just then, but yeah. Glorious <laughs> in self-reflection, uh, maybe. I mean, it, it has been a good year for that, but... <laughs> But hello, so I think Joel. this is a landmark because it's now officially three and a half years since Trump took office, right? Feels like it. <laughs> In dog or Trump or some kind of years. It's been an amazing, amazing year. And, you know, one of the ways we can count our blessings is that we kind of survived the tax scares on renewable energy. Some of the provisions that were going to knock out the wind investment tax credits, the electric vehicle uh, tax credits um, and some of the investment mechanisms did not make it into the final tax bill. That was some scary stuff, although there still is some ambiguity uh, around one of the provisions that we'll see. I mean, it's really geeky, complicated stuff, and I don't pretend to fully understand it, but um, that's frankly a sigh of relief, although we're not out of the woods yet on that. Yeah. I am not as quite as relieved as you are, I think, because I worry a lot about how this federal code rewrite will affect the states um, and the, the ability of states to be investing in the things that they have been investing in, right? So we have been very excited about the commitments that cities and states are making to uphold the Paris Agreement. And Unfortunately, as some of this federal stuff, I mean, the stuff that's being cut out of the federal budget and, and tax code, it's going to fall back on the states and cities. And so a lot of the things that they want to do, I'm afraid, they might not have the money to, to do. That's going to be a little unsettled. I mean, very unclear, certainly, but I, I do worry about that sort of blowback, if you will, um, and the ripple effect that, that the new tax code will have. Well, the commentators have been saying we're going to spend the next couple, at least, uh, presidential administration sort of sorting this out and fixing some of the problems. Um, but as I said earlier, sort of out of the woods, but not really. I mean, the other re significant thing is this, uh, this what's called the Section 201 solar trade case uh, in front of the U.S. International Trade Commission, uh, looking at possible tariffs on imported solar cells, which could significantly raise the price of solar um, and just really dampen that market. That's one that we're going to still see um, litigated or decided, I guess, in 2018. And that's one of the ones that also could be significantly problematic if the commissioners decide to impose this tariff on primarily Chinese uh, panels. So <laughs> lots of uncertainty left. Yep. And then, of course, the BEAT, the, the base uh, energy, base level energy um, support that they want to leave in there. So, Well, that's that's the one that sort of got pushed, to, mm -hmm. left out, but sort of is in there. That's the one I'm... It's still sort of in there, yeah. So it's, and that's the geeky thing you mentioned. And <laughs> yeah, I know we get, we get all geeked out on this stuff, but um you know, I guess ultimately it just comes down to what, what the money says, right? And how the money follows it. We'll have a lot of good accountants that are figuring it out soon. So, Yeah, I mean, um, the, the uh, final law, from what I understand, um, didn't, it sort of amends the, it's called the Base Erosion Anti-Abuse Tax beat that keeps, uh, we keep sort of 80% of the investment tax credit and 
reduction tax credit values, um, and the twenty percent, I guess, goes away. Uh, from what I've what I've been told, that is not a, a market killer. It's just a sort of an inconvenience. It's going to, you know, have maybe a slight dampening effect. But yeah, as we were saying, this is all to be played out in the coming weeks, months, and probably years. But speaking of weeks, let's talk about the week in review and sort of while we're at it, a little bit of the year ahead. Hi, I'm Nicole Lederer, Chair and Co-Founder of E2 Environmental Entrepreneurs. In 2018, my goal is to make sure that carbon performance permeates the legislation we pass, whether it's an infrastructure and transportation bill or an appropriations bill that funds agency initiatives at DOE or EPA on clean energy, and especially the upcoming Farm Bill, which is a major opportunity to incentivize carbon benefits provided by the ag sector. That's my goal at the federal level, as well as continuing to support policy innovation in the states to grow the clean economy. So you just heard the first of several resolutions, forecasts, predictions um, that we've reached out to some of our friends. We'll be playing them, interspersing them throughout this podcast. And the first one we'll do in January uh, for 2018. Some more there, just a little bit of what's uh, what some of our friends out there are thinking about. But Heather, let's get to some of the things that we talked about over the past week. And the first thing I want to get to is Rich Learoff. Rich is has been one of uh, uh, our stalwart columnists for a long, long time. I mean, well over a decade, uh, writing a column called The Right Chemistry. Uh, Rich uh, founded and has been executive director of uh, an organization called the Investor Environmental Health Network, which uh, works with investors to encourage companies to eliminate toxic chemicals in their products and supply chains, working a lot of shareholder resolutions and, uh, you know, just the whole range of uh, bisphenol A and, and triclosan and all just a whole bunch of chemicals of concern. Uh, Rich is uh, stepping away from the scene. He's retiring after a 40-some year career in environmental advocacy. And um, for his final column, which ran this week, he reprised something that um, I had commissioned from him back in uh, 2010, I guess. 2010, right? yeah. When we <laughs> did our, our 10th anniversary of Green Biz as a, as a website, and we did a, a series called GBX, Green Biz at 10, uh, just asking people to come up with 10 uh, forecasts or experiences or lessons. And and Rich um, provided one that's that just uh, is testimony to his insight and his level of knowledge and really stands up, what, uh, seven, eight years later, and uh, about the role of investors uh, in, in advocacy in general, uh, but specifically around uh, toxics. And um, I just really uh, encourage you to take a look at that because it's just something to pass along to investor relations or just consume yourself as a, as a sustainability professional. But Mostly want to just give a shout out to Rich um, and thank him. Thank you, Rich, for a great run and great contributions. And also thank you for not just leaving this column in the lurch, uh, passing the torch, as it were, uh, for the right chemistry column to uh, Mark Rossi, Dr. Mark Rossi, who's also been a contributor of ours. And he runs the Clean Production Action Organization. Um, and runs a great uh, annual event called BizNGO, bringing together companies and NGOs to talk about toxics. So anyway, um, hats off to to Rich Learoff. Thank you to Mark Rossi. And Rich, congratulations on a, on a great, great career. And I'm going to just put in my two cents here as well, Joel. I thank, thank you uh, again, Rich. I really have appreciated all the insights. Uh, we've I haven't known you as long as Joel, but you were... Uh, your insight on this issue has been very illuminating to me. And I, I just can't, I'm reading the column. Um, and it's just, it's particularly relevant right now. Investors more than ever are going to be playing a role in helping shape policy, especially um, now that we have some of the 
the policies at the federal level um, in question, right? There's been some movement on exactly what should be regulated on the toxics front. And so more than ever, investors, the corporate world are going to be playing a key role in, in um, making sure that we, we keep these things safe for humans, if you will. Uh, as to Mark Rossi, uh, he also is the lead author of the Chemical Footprint Project, which I think will be an increasingly relevant measure moving forward. You're going to see more um, companies spend time understanding where they stand. I just I was actually last week speaking about this with Dignity Health, um, and they're spending much more time understanding what exactly is in the products they use, and, and particularly in a healthcare environment, what's in these things they're sticking into humans' bodies, right? What's in the IV um, needles and, 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 and the plastics around them. So particularly relevant, um, especially right now. And thanks again, Rich, from, from all of us here at GreenBiz. And while we're talking about our stalwart contributors, uh, two words, Bob Langert. Uh, Bob is is a longtime friend of mine and friend of GreenBiz. Uh, I mean, going back to um, really the very early, about 1990, 91, when I was working on a book called The E-Factor and wrote about some of his um, really visionary uh, work as, as the head of sustainability at McDonald's, his partnership with Environmental Defense Fund, which really still stands out as one of the landmark uh, company NGO partnerships. Bob's not going anywhere, so this isn't uh, a farewell tribute like it is with Rich, but I just really want to salute. He had a piece, uh, he's been doing this series of 10 minutes with columns. So it's part of his uh, column called The Inside View. Um, this week, he has 10 minutes with uh, Mats Lederhausen, who I also have known a long time. He was the chair of BSR. Before that, he was part of McDonald's Sweden and then uh, a senior executive at McDonald's uh, globally and is uh, one of the really visionary uh, investors and uh, thinkers about sort of the new uh, the, the new kinds of businesses we need to be creating and what they need to look like and how they need to act. And um, his the, the 10 minutes with uh, Mats is, is just a, a great piece. And and just, you know, you should check out, uh, he did Fred Krupp, I uh, think just last week, 10 minutes with Fred Krupp, 10 minutes with Kirsten Toby, who's a terrific entrepreneur uh, here in Oakland, California, the co-founder of a, a company called Revolution Foods. 10 Minutes with Christopher Gavigan, who is Jessica Alba's co-founder at The Honest Company, and on and on. Um, they're, they're just really nice profiles of the people that that we work with, that we know, that are doing the jobs that, that many of you are doing. And people love reading about people. This is one of our perpetually well-read <laughs> columns, too. It, uh, so thank you, Bob. And, and two other stories I, I think I want to point out. One, uh, just a really significant story from the global insurance company, uh, AXA, which said, um, reported this week by, by Michael Holder, that their research or their CEO said in research that more than four degrees of Celsius of global warming in this century would make the world, are you ready for the word? uninsurable, <laughs> uninsurable if we get to four degrees uh, Celsius of warming. I mean, that means that the, the nobody's going to want to take on that bet of, of how uh, we protect. Uh, I mean, it's going to be left to governments of how we uh, protect and, and de-risk and, and ultimately make whole those who lose uh, property or God knows, lives as a result of, of flooding and drought and fires and, and other manifestations of climate change that already seemingly getting worse and, and are destined to do that if, as the temperature continues to inch up. This is just, uh, I have to say, as sobering as any article I've read. And there have been some sobering articles lately about tipping points that we've passed around uh, increasingly rapid uh, decline of, of glaciers in the, at the poles and the feedback loops that could come out of that. I didn't like seeing this. I didn't like seeing this either. I wonder if this is a warning like about certain policies that it might be con considering discontinuing, right? I mean, I, I'm just, <laughs> was one of those, uh, does this mean my, I'm going to lose my flood insurance and when, you know? Um, it's uh, quite sobering, especially when you 
do have um, also on the same end deficits rising, right? Here in the United States, we're not going to have <laughs> necessarily the money to um, to to back this up. And, so, and we're talking now about you know how do we take care of Texas and Florida and God knows Puerto Rico based on the storms that they had uh, this year and, and that we haven't even gotten to both Northern and Southern California and the, and the horrific fires that are still burning as we speak. And I think they said they'll get them under control in Southern California in the first week of January. So they've still got a long haul ahead. Uh, this amazing first responders from not just California, but from all over the country that have come in for that. My question is, at what point does do the financial risks of this uh, become untenable for companies, uh, and all, and as a result, become politically untenable? I think we're we're nearing the first of those where companies are starting to see, and investors are starting to see. In Moody's, for example, that um, climate risk is is going to be uh, a factor in credit risk. The question is, when does that become, in, at least in the United States, politically untenable to not be taking action? Big question. Yeah, I think when you don't call it climate risk, then people will understand it, you know? Yep. I think uh, it's just risk, period, end, end, of, end of sentence. Well, that leads us to the last story I want to talk about uh, today, uh, which is uh, just a really terrific piece by another friend of mine, Jamie Beck Alexander, called My Dad's a Conservative Naturalist, I'm an Environmental Hypocrite. Fantastic headline. <laughs> you love it. I love yeah. this headline. And uh, this came out of actually a conversation I had with Jamie at lunch uh, a few weeks ago, and I said, would you write that for us? That's That's just great. But it's basically about her... Then, I mean, she's, as we speak now, in Pennsylvania, visiting her family with her husband and kids. Uh, this is an anticipation of that, that, you know, she's talking about some rethinking she had about her father and his politics. He's a Republican who voted for Trump. She says he rolls his eyes at anything involving the words climate change and no, has no qualms about taking his Mustang out for joy rides every weekend. And in fact, you know, has been a lifelong uh, naturalist, you know, paradoxically, nature walk, stargazing, you know, he introduced her to Jamie to a love of the natural world, appreciation for the interconnectedness. And she says she comes from a, lo a whole line of salt of the earth people who, uh, in Pennsylvania, who kind of live where they uh, settled 300 years ago. So I think the point is, is that they don't do much traveling, they don't have a passport, uh, they didn't until they came to visit her in France when she was in college. They don't drive an electric vehicle. They 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 don't go that far from home, and they naturally have a pretty low carbon footprint. Jamie, on the other hand, says she spent most of her adult life surrounded by concrete and racked up over a million miles of flying during her work in the in the international aid industry. And she says, "I wore it like a badge of honor." Moved uh, in and out of apartments and cities, and finally settling down on the opposite coast from her family means she has to fly cross country a bunch. And I guess it's just a reflection of you know who's the real environmentalist here? Someone who is you know lives closer to the to the ground, as it were, low carbon footprint, uh, appreciator of nature, someone who, who understands plants and trees and lands and and flora and fauna, as opposed to someone who is an environmentalist and living the living the the dream but also living the values and and it just it's a great piece that maybe anyone going home for the holidays to a, a family that may not be simpatico with uh, uh, their environmental or sustainability views should read check check that out it goes to these the uh, the true the truism that you need to know your audience and um this is a great reminder that people probably have the same views you do on the environment and on protecting certain natural resources. Um, and it, the second it goes into the political discussion, that's when people shut their ears. But if you think about what they're doing and how it relates to to what you believe, then you're going to you're going to touch you're going to reach into the people that you need to reach into. It, it, it's a a great reminder that we can't be short-sighted about who our audience is. And, uh, you know, especially the corporate world needs to, to reflect on the terms they use. Um, you know, I just, I 
this was a, I, I have to admit, I'm probably, I'm very much like Jamie <laughs> in this regard, right? Um, and I, I would wager to say you probably would, well, no, you're better than I am, Joel, but, but, know. you know, know I've, I've, uh, you know, but s- sincerely, I, I, you know, I, I really respected this piece, um, because it was a very uh, thoughtful expression and, and description of, I think, what many of us in the environmental movement are. <laughs> and, you know, again, know your audience and, and really reflect on how to sp- speak with them. And I think maybe we'll, we'll hit a turning point. Maybe this is, you know, maybe we're hitting the great turning point. I, I feel like there's a lot of great turning points possible now. Um, it's what we do with some of these opportunities and, and challenges that are being put in front of us that will define where, where we go in the future. Hi, this is Bill McDonough. I'm an architect, designer, and working with Cradle to Cradle and Circular Economy. My big make or break issues for 2018 include promulgating the notion of designing buildings as material banks with materials having material passports so that buildings become assets for future generations and that we understand the materials that goes into them, down to the molecule. Also, working on fashion, I need to make or break in the fashion world when the average American has 70 new pieces of clothing a year and we're starting to see microfibers and other materials in the environment that we don't understand. So I think cradle to cradle textiles apparel is a make or break issue. Plastics in the ocean is a terror and I'm working on that and hope that we can come up with ways to concentrate and flow all these materials so they stop becoming fugitive and, and we find ways to reuse these materials without them becoming a problem in the oceans or in the atmosphere. And I'd say the, the general thing for 2018 is to get on track with hope so that the children understand that the adults are operating under child supervision for a change so that we can actually offer them a, a future they can delight in and not be terrified of. Hi, it's Joel again. If you're enjoying this podcast, I hope you'll check out Center Stage, our new podcast featuring live interviews from GreenBiz events. You'll find conversations with notables like Paul Hawken, Annie Leonard, Janet Napolitano, and executives from a wide range of companies. Check it out. Go to greenbiz.com slash center stage or wherever you get your podcasts. When the clock strikes 2018, China says it's going to stop accepting imported waste from outside the the country. 24 types of waste, including lots of different kinds of plastics, electronic waste, and mixed paper. Since the United States is one of the top exporters of recyclables and waste to China, that's going to leave companies in the lurch with a potential backlog of waste. Associate editor Anya Hollemeiser reported on how U.S. companies and recyclers are dealing with this materials migraine in a story called U.S. Companies Deconstruct China's Recycling Import Ban. Hey, Anya. Hi, Joel. So what's going on here? What's the impact of all this? So the primary impact is going to be on pricing. Traditionally, recycled materials or secondary materials were cheaper to implement into manufacturing than virgin plastics and virgin, um, virgin paper. But now prices will be reversed and it's even cheaper to produce virgin plastics because of new petrochemical investments in the U.S. and other factors than it will be to implement recycling. So right now, uh, every day about 3,700 shipping containers of recyclables are shipped to China. But in recent years, starting in 2013 with a program called Green Fence, then a program called National Sword, and a new recent filing with the World Trade Organization, China is cracking down on the amount of contaminated and hazardous waste that has also unfortunately made its way onto shores. Well, I can understand why they wouldn't want that. Well, you talked in the piece to Waste Management. They're the largest waste hauler and recycler in the United States. What's this ban going to do for them? I spoke with Brent Bell, president of Recycle America Waste Management, which also, among other things, exports recycled paper about why this puts U.S. companies in a bind. The one thing that we keep reiterating is it's actually a global problem, uh, and, and it's a 
it's a concern to, you know, I would say nearly all recycling programs across not only North America, but across the world. Uh, when when uh, a, a country as large as China that has had such a historical appetite for these commodities, um, you know, essentially drops out, uh, that it has a has a big impact on it. You know, re- recycling. I always tell people it's a, it's a unique industry. Uh, there's a lot, you know, a lot of folks are passionate about it. But at the end of the day, it's a manufacturing environment that we make materials, right? So when demand for your product decreases, in any other manufacturing situation, you you know you'd reduce your your inbound raw materials, right? Um, in recycling, we don't have the ability to stop that inbound flow of materials. So as an industry. You know, we always make sure that we encourage uh, the public and consumers to demand more recycling content and finish good products because I think one of our biggest challenges is to make sure we keep a high level of demand for the recycling products um, so that uh, so that we have, you know, multiple end markets. And, I, you know, I think this, this just kind of illustrates the fact that, that you know, that having that demand side is equally or more important than the supply side on, on, on recycling in some cases because the demand really does, uh, does uh, uh, drive the economic impacts to justify all the investments that processors make. So is there any upside for anyone for this ban? There are companies that are seeing this as an opportunity to improve their own recycling infrastructure, um, and other companies are turning to closed-loop recycling processes uh, to increase the amount of recycled material within their um, supply chains and within their manufacturing. Dylan DeThomas, Vice President of Industry Collaboration at the Recycling Partnership, said that the organization um, recently worked with the Association of Plastics Recyclers to help several major companies kind of automate the use of recycled plastics. Recycled resin was less expensive than new resin, and so there really wasn't any need for there to be any intervention for companies to want to consume that material because it was cheaper. Um, now it is not cheaper because of uh, this tsunami of virgin resin. And so we realized um, with our partners, the Association of Plastic Recyclers, uh, that that there needed to be uh, champions to help pull this uh, this recycling through the system because, of course, not made into something new, and you don't get to enjoy the environmental benefits that recycling promises. We just started uh, calling a lot of the companies that are on this initial list, and so they're companies that everybody knows, like Procter and Gamble, Curry Green Mountain, Target, Coca-Cola, Campbell Soup, you know. And then there's also some folks that are part of it that maybe you don't know, which are packaging producers and recyclers. So that's Cleantech, Plastipac, KW Plastics, Merlin, and Envision. So what are the long-term effects of all this? Again, while there is the short-term challenge of what to do with this influx of recyclables, in the long term, it could be a net positive to improve U.S. recycling streams. John Bradburn, manager of waste reduction at car manufacturer General Motors, company that actually strives to send zero waste to landfill generally outside of the the ban, um, talked about how they innovated new ways to increase their use of recycled materials and even spur business development. Certainly the long term's not understood uh, on this issue. In other words, how long it might last, how it might change, what adjustments are needed. But I can tell you currently we've got some conditions where it has impacted us and we've gone back and looked at them and made adjustments within our program to uh, that long-term commitment to aspire to zero waste company. Now, um, what that's going to do, not just for us, but for anybody that generates materials, is um, really um, should challenge us to look at how materials are generated and do source separation and do some maybe some innovative projects um, that will maybe create economic growth, uh, maybe create jobs. And I'll give you an example. Um, cardboard, for instance, or OCC, um, very, very common material, and it's part of this subject we're talking about. Do we really need to just send that material into a market that consumes it in a traditional sense? Or could we do that along with maybe making, in our instance, vehicle parts like we did and using the physical properties of that material in sound absorption material. 
which we did for the Buick Verano and Buick LaCrosse. And, um, you know, I think that's an example of how companies or entire communities or countries for that matter can take a look at their materials and say, you know, how do we maybe keep that material close to home or at least how do we take that material and do something with it that maybe hasn't been done before GM has been a leader in trying to get to zero waste to landfill they have in a lot of their plants. Did Bradburn have any advice to other companies? He said it's really a design issue. It's a matter of going back to the drawing board. And this could be an opportunity to improve America's recycling industry as well as the health of communities um, and generally reduce the amount of waste out there and transition towards a circular economy. So what companies can do to help um, manage this in a better way might be to start into what we call the design for environment stage or the design phase whereby they can say, you know, there's some uh, plastic types of materials that are part of this stream. Um, why don't we design those out? Why don't we write a specification that um, rather than getting mixed plastics uh, for packaging aids, for instance, which are little protective caps and plugs and nipples that go on, threads, fittings to keep the quality of the part up. Um, let's write a specification to make it out of low-density polyethylene, for instance, or high-density polyethylene. And that could drive the price down by way of creating more volume demand for that particular one type of material. But on the other end, it could also generate a better byproduct from the manufacturing process that makes it more usable in that form as compared to being mixed. We did that, uh, wrote a specification uh, for mixed plastic packaging aids that we call them on uh, a typical assembly plant in the automotive industry across all industry, yeah, right around a quarter million, 300,000 pounds of that material a year. The current situation in China you know, should present an opportunity for companies to take a good look at their business model, their current business model, and decide, you know, how do we get stronger? How do we get better? How do we manage our materials in a smarter way? And do that with a um, mentality of sharing those lessons learned, those case studies with others, um, so that they can, other entities, companies, governments, uh, communities, can partner together and make our world a better place. Great, interesting stuff. As they say, waste is a terrible thing to mine. Anya Holomizer, Associate Editor, thanks a lot. Thank you. My name is Will Sarney. I'm CEO of Water Foundry. And my make or break challenge for 2018 is to move multinationals from water stewardship thinking, which is essentially a CSR issue right now, to a water strategy that embraces and accelerates innovation in technology, funding and financing, business models, and uh, partnerships. And the reason for that is that I really want the dialogue to change from one of risk and scarcity one of abundance and really nail some of the uh, SDGs that we need to with respect to water. Uh, also as part of this is really bringing in outsiders from the water industry. I think we desperately need people with new ideas and new backgrounds and also better collaboration between multinationals, NGOs, the public sector and water technology startups. Twenty seventeen was not a record breaking year for corporate renewable energy purchases, but it was pretty darn close. According to the Business Renewable Center at the Rocky Mountain Institute, the corporate sector contracted for about two point eight five gigawatts of clean power through December fifth in the form of power purchase agreements, green power purchases, green tariffs, and outright project acquisitions. That compares with the 3.26 gigawatts of clean electricity that companies bought during 2015. The U.S. tax overhaul has thrown uncertainty on the future of that movement, but now that it's all but final, we have more clarity around scenarios for 2018. 
I spent some time this week discussing the short-term outlook for the clean energy transition with Jules Kortenhorst, Chief Executive Officer of RMI. I asked Jules to reflect on several areas, including the potential for energy storage and so-called low-carbon technologies, solutions that help draw down emissions. Here's that interview, starting with his perspective on the outlook for corporate renewable energy purchases during 2018. The um, outlook for renewables was somewhat uncertain over the course of the last month as the um, Republican Party fought through their uh, tax plan. But the good news is that we can now look forward to ongoing stability in the uh, tax treatment of renewables for 2018 and beyond. And as a result, we expect uh, that corporate renewable energy investments uh, will continue to, uh, to grow. Whether the pace of growth will be as furious as in 2017, uh, is still uncertain. But we see some interesting innovations starting to take shape. Um, we expect that more companies will join the fray, will join the market. Um, we see momentum building. And most importantly, uh, what we continue to see is a drop in prices uh, of both utility-scale uh, solar as well as wind. Um, so this unrelenting reduction in cost of renewables uh, that, that for what we can see will continue into uh, next year um, will further accelerate the market um, and uh, will possibly uh, compensate for, for some of the, the facts that, that are moving in the other direction, uh, like the reduction in the value of tax equity. And certainly those, some of those tax issues are United States focused. Um, what about the global outlook is is the global outlook or international outlook stronger or the same as the US you know what what are your feelings about that the global outlook is definitely strong and, and we will see in in our view we will see corporates trying to uh, engage in buying renewables in uh, quite new uh, marketplaces and um, in many instances the commitment to start buying electricity sort of emerged over the last couple of years, and the the early uh, adopters focused initially on Europe and the United States uh, as markets that were relatively easy to do transactions in. Um, but now that they are seeing their renewable penetration uh, growing in those markets, it's time for them to start thinking about uh, new uh, areas and uh, we have started to engage with corporates for example in China um, we we are going to launch our business renewable center in China because the appetite of uh, both international companies and domestic Chinese companies to buy uh, renewable electricity is there uh, the market is not yet very mature the regulatory framework is only just emerging uh, but we expect to see activity there we see uh, some initial activity in India. Uh, so yes, it will grow internationally, uh, probably uh, uh, with fits and starts in some markets, uh, probably um, in, in some markets more quickly than in others, uh, but really across the globe. What is your outlook on energy storage technologies during the next 12 months? So energy storage is starting to come into its own um, as well. And there are really uh, two ways of thinking about the developments on the energy storage side. Uh, the first area where energy storage is um, starting to play a significant role is uh, on grid-based storage where California, the UK, other markets are starting to experiment with uh, procurement of energy storage for its uh, services to the electricity grid. And uh, the, the auctions uh, that have happened both in the UK and in California um, and on the, the East Coast have uh, created new business models and uh, stimulated the deployment of um, electricity storage uh, at scale. Uh, and, and by the way, we've of course also seen that in a very interesting way in Australia where an, an urgent issue arose on, on the electricity grid 
and uh, Elon Musk swooped in and Tesla deployed its uh, batteries at very short uh, notice. But it's not just at the grid scale where energy storage is starting to play a role. Uh, Increasingly, we are also seeing corporate and industrial customers looking at the possibility of adding storage uh, to their um, uh, deployment of renewable energy uh, in in the commercial and industrial arena. So you put solar on your roof, but you quickly decide that it could be attractive to also add some batteries into the building so that you can uh, be more uh, self-sufficient in terms of energy provision uh, and particularly also uh, work the markets, play the, the, the cost trade of, of the, the time of day usage and uh, versus the time at which the power is being generated. So I think we'll see energy storage technologies uh, continue to play a role both at the grid level and at the individual customer level. Switching gears a little bit, it seems as if we have reached a tipping point when it comes to how institutional investors and the financial community are evaluating companies for risks related to climate change. Lots of activity in the last couple of weeks. What impact do you think this will have on fossil fuels companies in 2018? That's a good question, and it is an important um, question for each of the categories of fossil fuel companies. Uh, Let's first talk about coal companies, because um, the future of coal looks significantly different from the future of uh, oil or gas. Uh, We've seen a little bit of an uptick in demand for thermal coal um, coming out of China over the last uh, year, but that is not a a long-term transition into a trend of growth. The long-term path for coal is declining. Uh, And financial investors, institutional investors, Um, uh, both uh, on the equity and on the the debt side, are now looking at coal uh, with great trepidation. And we see more and more companies back off from investing um, in uh, coal, whether it is through debt or equity. And in fact, the big Carmichael project in Australia that has been uh, a hot subject of debate over the course of the last Uh, 12 months, uh, a a new mine to be developed by um, Mr. Andani from India for supply of coal to uh, India, uh, but built in in Australia, uh, has failed to be able to raise the debt capital to develop the project. Um, And it is an illustration of the fact that more and more institutional investors are just backing off from uh, investing in coal, partly because of the financial risks associated with those investments, but partly undoubtedly also because of the corporate responsibility and and public affairs uh, uh, considerations. So I would think that coal is going to struggle in the upcoming years and and, and is going to struggle in 2018 to get anything financed, um, to get anything built, uh, and increasingly is also going to face real challenges with existing operations. Um, In the Paris summit uh, last week, AXA announced that over the course of the next five years, it would back off of writing insurance policies for coal-fired power plants and coal mining operations. Uh, You cannot run a coal-fired power plant or a coal mining operation if you can't insure it. And AXA is only one insurance company, but others are likely to follow. So this is um, undoubtedly another watershed moment. On oil and gas, the the outlook is different. Even in the most uh, ambitious scenarios, Uh, The world will not be able to do uh, without oil and gas for another couple of decades. And many of the reserves on the book of investor-owned oil and gas companies have only a lifespan of 10, 20 years. So the stranded asset risk is significantly less in the case of oil and gas companies. Having said that, they have to shift away from being traditional fossil fuel companies to being new energy companies over the course of a relatively short period of time. And making that transition is going to be hugely challenging. Some companies seem to be embracing it. Companies like British Petroleum, Total, Shell, Statoil 
seem to have fully embraced the idea that over the course of the next 10, 15, 20 years, they have to move from being fossil fuel companies to being new energy companies. Whether they will be able to make that transition remains to be seen. Um, and whether investors will, how investors will evaluate the uh, cash flow uh, and, and risk profile associated with that transition remains to be seen. But that is a very different story from companies um, like uh, Chevron, uh, ConocoPhillips, uh, and Exxon, who seem to be betting on ongoing demand for fossil fuels well into the second half of this century. And two years ago, one might have understood that perspective, even if one had disagreed with it from a, a sustainability point of view. But I must admit that we here at Rocky Mountain Institute find that uh, uh, the outlook for oil uh, is now a dramatically different one than it was uh, even as, as, as little as two years ago. The shift towards electric mobility is dramatically accelerating, and we are likely looking at a much steeper S-curve of adoption of electric uh, transportation, uh, which will put demand for oil and oil products under pressure and will dram have dramatic impacts on the valuation of oil and gas companies going forward. Yeah, so I'll, I think it's worth noting BP just bought a solar company, um, I believe, last week, panel company, getting back into that market. So clearly, I mean, it was a $200 million purchase. So I guess you could call it a drop in the bucket, <laughs> you know, based on what they spend on other things. But um, you do see these companies investing more in, and I guess, what we can call low carbon technologies. Um, and, and further, you know, not just just energy generation, but also systems and approaches that that work us towards drawing down emissions and not just limiting them. So I'd like to ask you finally, you know, my final question, you know, what are your expectations for that low carbon technology movement? Is, is, there, um, is there going to be good activity in this during 2018? And if so, what industries are leading the way? So the outlook for many low carbon technologies is very upbeat um, and and we are we're talking about the traditional clean technology or low carbon technologies solar wind a very upbeat outlook uh, led battery storage electric vehicles uh, all uh, looking at a bright uh, future of an accelerating transition but you're asking not just about the low carbon technologies for the energy system but also the low carbon technologies that will actually draw down emissions uh, from the atmosphere. And there the question uh, is still a little bit more uncertain. The fact that humanity will need these technologies is uh, without doubt. Humanity will require technologies that enable it to uh, remove CO2 from the atmosphere over time. Um, but it's still unclear how those technologies will be commercially viable. It is still unclear which ones will be the preferred technologies, which solutions will actually be able to scale. A lot of attention, a lot of focus has gone into the direction of equipment that can take CO2 out of the atmosphere and then potentially sequester it underground. Uh, clean air capture is, is the label. Um, but it's, for me at least, at this moment, hard to imagine how we can uh, create at scale the technology, the infrastructure to suck carbon out of the atmosphere through equipment in any way that can compete with natural systems. So our view at Rocky Mountain Institute is that it is more likely that the technologies that will make a real difference in uh, sequestering carbon are those that, that leverage natural systems, particularly forest uh, and agricultural type solutions uh, that sequester carbon from the atmosphere. One interesting example that I recently have um, uh, focused on, a company called Land Life Company, uh, a Dutch company that has developed a technology to dramatically improve the survival of trees being planted in desert areas. 
Uh, this technology based on a cocoon that sequesters water, that keeps water at the, at the foot of a new seedling, uh, enables uh, dramatically enables the, the reforestation of degraded and deserted lands. And uh, that could become a mechanism by which humanity can sequester carbon at very large scale, possibly more likely than something like uh, biomass uh, and carbon capture and storage or clean air capture and storage. So a broad range of technologies, still an uncertain commercial outlook, uh, but technology that we will have to see uh, through to, uh, to success. Well, certainly much to watch in the next year, and I appreciate your insights and your outlook on that. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast, and a very happy new year to you and your family. Thank you, Heather. Merry Christmas, and the very best wishes for you and all your listeners as well. Thank you. Hi, I'm Peter Kelly Detweiler, principal with Northbridge Energy Partners and a frequent verger. And the challenge I want to figure out this year is how does this whole blockchain thing tie into energy markets? We've been hearing an awful lot about Bitcoin and the valuations rising to $18,000 a Bitcoin, all this sort of speculative hype, but that's the currency. What's really happening with the distributed ledger that is blockchain and how can that be used to get us to you know grid 2.0 or grid 3.0 where we really have all these potentially millions of distributed assets that know what's going on in the power grid, understand avoided costs, have smart contracts with, with if-then statements, and, and maybe could do something. I mean, all that theory is out there, but what I'm really trying to figure out in 2018 is who's applying this, and what are the milestones in the road that tell us, oh yeah, this is really happening, that this distributed ledger could bring us closer to that sustainable energy economy, which we've been talking about in Verge for years and seeing a lot of progress, but this has the potential to potentially phase change that shift. And I'm trying to figure out in 2018, does blockchain really have the potential to revolutionize energy markets the way that some people are speculating? And that's our 350 podcast for this week. Go to greenbiz.com slash 350 to find more about the things we've talked about in this episode. While you're there, look for a link to our other podcast, Center Stage, the best of live interviews from GreenBiz events. Send us an email at 350 at greenbiz.com. We always love your comments, ideas, questions, etc. Thanks to GreenBiz 350's director, Stephanie Joyce, and our intrepid managing editor, Elsa Wenzel. We'll be back on January 5th for another edition of GreenBiz 350, the first of 2018. In the meantime, from all of us here at GreenBiz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks for listening and have a great and safe holiday. Bye.